0: sermon text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. These are the words of the Lord. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are all folly to him, And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, even fine gold. Quite a large section of Scripture to go through this morning. But Paul's moving the argument a little bit from what he had begun in our text from last week. Paul is is holding up in front of the congregation uh, a new perspective on wisdom. And he holds up for us last time, there are two people. There are two types of people in this world, in Paul's day and in our own. Those who look at the cross of Christ and its foolishness, its weakness. And then there are those who look at the cross and it's the power of God. So he's still talking about the cross here today in this text. But he's moving the argument a little bit more and saying it's not only that Christ is crucified, and therefore kind of making this dividing line amongst people, but Christians at the cross are crucified. It's so not only the wisdom of the cross seems foolish or weak to the world, but now we join Christ in looking foolish and weak in the world. It's moving the argument, and that now that wisdom is embodied in us, in the church, in our lives, in the message that we preach. So he pushes it, pushes it. The flesh leans on its own understanding, but ultimately cannot see. It's, It's blind by pride, but the Spirit, the true wisdom of God, pours contempt on pride. It sees what it used to see. The, the boasting, the self-sufficiency, the, the kind of foolhardiness, the surety in itself and the flesh, and it looks on it and says, I want nothing to do with that anymore. Give me Jesus. Give me real wisdom. Give me real life. Give me real vitality. I want salvation. I want forgiveness of sins. I want God. And it becomes to us power and life and vitality what many of I I hear you in conversation, I want this for other people. I want people to come to church. I want them to to experience and see the life and the wisdom that we have in God. That's right. That's right. So to digest the text of this size this morning, we're going to primarily look at what Paul does. He divides it up into three contrasts. There there are three primary contrasts in this text that I think will guide us through. The first is this. There are those who... can receive God's wisdom, and there are those who can't. Those who can receive God's wisdom and those who can't. Second contrast will be this. We have the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of this world. We have the Spirit of God. We no longer have the Spirit of this world. The last one will be the natural man, what Paul is calling the natural man, as opposed to the spiritual man. The natural man versus the spiritual man. This is the first contrast this morning, verses 6 through 10. This will be those who can receive the wisdom of God and those who can't. Why, why is it? That's a great question. Why is it that there's this wisdom that it seems that some of us can receive and, and others cannot? What's the deal with that? Well, instead of reading the text again this morning, how about I just give you the highlights to, to hang on to? The verses 6, 6 through 10, we're talking about this. Paul says, we do impart wisdom, but it's not of this world. It's a hidden wisdom. It was planned before the ages were even begun. It's for our glory. Had the rulers been aware of this, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. And that what no eye has seen or heart imagined, God has prepared great things for those who love him. And that this wisdom is for the mature. So let me see if I can digest that. Just a little bit. Paul says we do have wisdom to, to say. He's not just getting up and saying, we have this secret wisdom, and it sounds like gobbledygook, and we're just going to double down and say, well, yes, it's unintelligible to you, but uh, that's the way we like it. That's not it at all. He says this is actually real wisdom from God, but it's it's not Able to be understood by those in the flesh. His phrase is that we impart wisdom to those who are mature. We're going to look at that this morning. What does it mean to be mature? Acts 4.13 says it this way. Now when they had seen the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They had recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's, that's a precise illustration of what Paul is saying here. They, they're looking at them and saying, ah, this doesn't look legitimate. But they have been with Jesus. There is a sort of power here. And it's as if the, the, you sort of imagine your line of sight. You know, the, the ability to kind of crane your neck and look upwards. It's as if man in all of his intellect, whether he's a ruler or philosopher or a king, uh, can only raise his neck and, and lift his eyeballs so high up in the world and in world history, and yet God's wisdom is higher still. It's beyond our vantage point. Does that make sense? So there is a natural physical limitation, a fleshly limitation that, that pride seems to withhold us from being able to view God. And the interesting thing about the cross, sort of to bring the cross back into to our, the forefront of our minds, is that God says, with all of your craning of neck, with all of your trying to get past to look up and see God, you can't, so I will come down to you. And when I come down to you, I will go so low that you will be too busy looking upwards to see me. And when you look down and you see the shame of the cross, And you see what I do with my time and where I spend it and the types of people. It looks foolish. It looks silly. It looks stupid. So Paul says we are imparting wisdom. There is wisdom here. There is an ability to see God, but it comes to the mature. He says it in contrast to the rulers of this age who can't see it. Now, let's pay attention to this for just a second. He probably has in view the rulers of the age in, in kind of two things in his mind. One being the rulers, as in the, the Pharisees, the religious rulers, or Pilate. So, those who are, because the text says it, uh, those who had a hand or authority in handing over Christ for crucifixion. He later says if they had known this, the rulers wouldn't have given over Christ. He's contrasting it, saying the wisdom that we have stands opposed to the rulers of this age, but he actually goes on in chapter 4 to say, and sort of incline, that the rulers of this age are anyone who's seeking power. It's precisely what the Corinthians had begun to do. We follow Paul, we follow Apollos, we follow Peter. And they were trying to accumulate it for themselves, a, a, a resting on the flesh and a pride. They were becoming puffed up, and Paul says no, it stands opposed to those who would like to rule in this age, whether they are legitimate authoritarians like the Pharisees in the church or Pilate as a governor, or if you would like to rule in this age by your wisdom, strength, or flesh. He says no, God chose the weak things in this world to shame the strong. And in chapter 4, he makes a really explicit argument on this point by saying, hey, you know what, guys? You think you're rulers in this age? I really wish that you were a ruler. Man, that would be nice because we wouldn't suffer anymore as apostles, and maybe we could catch a break, but that's not what's happening because we come and preach Christ crucified, and it seems to just get us prison sentence after prison sentence and martyrdom after martyrdom. It would be really nice if you were a ruler, but you're not. And it's a direct rebuke to them by saying, if you think that your comfort in the um, realm of the world, your nice moral standing, that you can take Christ into that, something's wrong. Because the Christ is an offense. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. How come when I preach it, I get rocks thrown at me? And how come when you preach it, you get into the good graces of society? Something might be off. There might be some sort of compromise there. He says instead that it's a hidden wisdom. The wisdom is not of this age. They can't see it. Those who try to rule cannot see it because the sense of rule is a sense of pride, again. It's a resting on the flesh. So here's here's something interesting. What does he actually getting down to saying who can see and become wise and who can't, is that it's not primarily a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the moral intellect. It's not primarily a matter, it's actually not at all a matter of the intellect. Jesus, praise God, I thank you that you have revealed this to little children. The gospel is not um, too high and lofty for us to understand. It's in a moral vocabulary and a moral intellect that we do not have. It's a hidden wisdom, hidden from the eyes, not because of the slowness of our mind, but because of the hardness of our hearts. We look at the cross and we don't understand it. It's not beautiful and powerful to us, not because we can't understand it, it's because we don't want it. It's foolish, it's weak, it's grotesque. It shames me. It's hard to stomach. So it's a gift of the Spirit. That, that wisdom is hidden and becomes a gift of the Spirit. Galatians 5, what does it say about the fruits of the Spirit? Kids, you probably know it. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The Spirit must come to the By grace, giving sight. But that sight is not primarily intellectual sight. It is the sight of love. Spirit's gift is one of love and joy and peace and patience. You kind of see that? It is a gift of God's grace to give the wisdom, not only changing the mind about Christ, but primarily... This is difficult for us in our Western world. We, 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 we talk about our mind more, but in this context, they would have more understood it in, in, in the sort of the guts or the heart, what we call the heart, the feelings, the emotions. It changes the affections. John 5 says it this. Listen how Jesus says it. But I know, this is from verses 42 through 44, but I know that you do not have the love of God. Listen to this. Why could they not understand? Why is Jesus standing right in front of the, all these people doing all these miracles? I mean, I would like to think that if I had seen Jesus firsthand do miracles and raise the dead, I would totally believe. They didn't. And he says this to him. He says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me if another would come in his own name, a ruler of this world, you would receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It's a direct rebuke from Jesus that their blindness was because they didn't love him and they didn't love the Father. So that must come by the work of the Spirit. So Paul says all of this, why why am I telling you all of this? It becomes the primary thing fixating point of how he communicates the gospel. Not battling the spirit of the age with apologetics lessons, but holding up the crucified Messiah. Apologetics has its place, absolutely. But it's primarily not that people don't understand the cross, it's that they don't want to submit to Christ. The primary blinding agent is the flesh. Next thing he says is, "This was this was planned this way before the ages began." So this sort of design here, the cross is not Plan B. It's not accidental. God didn't say, "Ooh, I, how, how am I going to fix this thing?" In other words, from before Genesis one, before the accounts of creation, in God's mind, one of the, the the white hot, glaring center of his of his glory, the thing that we can stare at and look at and just begin to understand more and more as the wisdom and power and beauty of God is the cross. It is no accident. It was no mistake. It wasn't that man fell short and then God decided on the cross. It was before the foundations of the world. That statement that I just made makes no sense to the world. But to you in this room, that should just be awestruck. The cross is a penultimate wisdom of God. All of history, all of eternity has been leading to that moment. Next, quickly on this first point, it's for our glory. And had the rulers truly known this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Ephesians 2 says we were uh, dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked. We We were like those who couldn't see. The wisdom of God, the power of the cross was hidden to us. We were following the course of this world, the rulers of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, following the passage of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of the world, but God. So who can receive this wisdom and who can't? Those who are dead in their sins can't. But all those can, by God, who is rich in mercy, with great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead and blind, made us alive together in Christ. By grace we have been saved. It's it's a thing that this church acutely holds on to, that we have nothing to boast in, which is, again, the argument of Paul, except for Christ alone. Well, had the rulers of this world known this, had they known that this was the truism of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In a strictly intellectual sense, logical sense, construction of that kind of clause, it's right. Had they known he was the Messiah, yeah, they wouldn't have crucified him. But it's more to the point of had they known what was happening, it's, it's, do you remember the story in the book of Esther of Haman? And Haman makes this plot, you know, to kill Mordecai, and he makes these big gallows, and he's like, I'm going to get Mordecai killed this entire time, and it turns out that Haman was the one who built his own gallows, and he was the one that died. H- had, they, had they really had wisdom, How, were they, if they were able to see the rulers of this world would not have crucified Christ, by doing so, they destroyed their own legitimacy. Again, checkmate in the wisdom of God. He uses the weak things and the foolish things, the things that seem like nothing, to shame the wise and shame the strong. You cannot get the upper hand on God. So when the Pharisees say, look, get rid of this guy, crucify him, we are the ones in charge here, uh, they sealed their fate in losing their power. As Christ conquered on the cross, displayed his wisdom and power, and was raised to life. Same goes for Pilate. An extension of the Roman Empire. But it's sad. The, the, the statement here leads into the next clause. It's sad that they miss this in their pride and flesh. They miss it because what no eye has seen, here's the next clause, what no ear has heard, nor heart imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 64. A lot of people tend to interpret this as a quote referring to heaven. It's not. It's referring to those who will not come into fellowship with God because they do not love him. And so Isaiah says, look, there, there is a richness which your eye cannot even perceive, where you're, it's falling on your ears as deaf, and your heart cannot even imagine what is prepared for you in this foolish cross. You would never have crucified him had you understood that. If you understood what was coming for you in the free gift of grace on God himself laying down his authority and power, you don't understand what you're doing. Jesus says that from the cross. Father, forgive them. They have no clue what they're doing. And what a beautiful thing to think for those in the church. This is how we should testify to those who are outside, who cannot see. We are those who have tasted and say, yes, let me tell you. Let me try to speak with my mouth so that you hear with your ears, so that your heart could feel what it's like for those who love God and who receive the love of God. Fellowship with God is amazing. Paul says this is for our glory. His whole impetus for this section of text is this is our testimony. Get the testimony right. Get the testimony right. And, and, and what I love to see is it's, you, can, you can a bit see this perspective in the story of the prodigal son. So not only the strict dynamics of the story, but from the perspective of the storyteller. I love the perspective of the storyteller. Jesus standing around a crowd. They've got all these preconceived notions of what God would be like. They come with all their fear and insecurities. And he says, as an expert, let me tell you what God is like. You can't even imagine how good this is. That the father runs out to wrap his arms around the prodigal son. Do you see that perspective? No eye has seen or heart, imagine, or ear has heard. Well, God has prepared for those who love him. So it is up to the testimony of the church. It is up to the cross of Christ. It is for the preacher's mouth to proclaim not merely tight logic so that we can expose the hidden wisdom because of the weak intellect of those of this world. It's not that. It is a moral intellect. And where do we pierce the moral intellect? Where, where Christ is lifted up, he draws them into himself. The arguments are silenced. And what was once seen as foolish by the grace of God, not a pastor, not my rhetoric, is seen as lovely, is seen as beautiful. Contrast number two. <clears throat> We have the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of this world. I will read this just as a reminder. Verses 11 through 13. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in them? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Um, Again, as testimony of the gift of the Spirit to see, when Jesus asks, Who am I to the crowd? some say a prophet others say a teacher and peter says you are the son of god what is jesus response to him blessed are you simon barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven the wisdom to be able to see is a gift of the spirit so paul says now that we've been given the spirit here's here's one of the benefits Here's how we become strangers and aliens to the world. Not only is the cross strange, not only is the cross foolish, but now we become foolish in the same sense. We have an inside track on the Spirit of God. And he says this wonderfully warm and wonderfully intimate argument of who knows the the thoughts of a person except for the spirit of that person. The innermost depths now we have access to by the gift of the Spirit of God. One of the things that we need to do today by way of application of this sermon is to give explicit praise to the Spirit of God for causing us to bear fruit in love and joy, peace and patience, to see the cross, to see the Son, and to love the Father. Because it is a gift of His grace that He works within us. And as the, uh, the Spirit teaches us, even from the depths of God, there are things like communicable attributes of God and incommunicable. We don't really know everything about God. That would be sort of an inexhaustible thing to just take into our minds. and We will progressively see more and more, but we do have the Spirit testifying To who God is. In Romans it says that our hearts now cry out. Those hearts that once saw the cross again as foolish cry out what? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The heart cries out. That is the exact opposite of pride and self-sufficiency. It's crying out in dependency. It's crying out in need. It's crying out in the delight of its dependency. And all the blessings we receive from the Father through the Son and the gift of the Spirit. Paul says we impart this, the spiritual wisdom in spiritual language, words not taught by the wisdom of this age. Let me be careful here. What I'm not trying to say is that there's some secret code that we present when we present the gospel, but we don't talk like everyone else talks. We don't deal in or traffic in the wisdom of this world and what they think is wise traffic and speak in the wisdom of God. Let me show an example of this. When Jesus got up to speak, he would frequently say things like, you have heard it said by the wisdom of this world, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, do you see what he's doing? You see that? You catch it? You have heard it said. You live in this world. You have a vantage point that's here. But I say to you this other thing. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. From the world's vantage point, most of what we see or say, much, much of what we preach will seem strange, foreign, beyond their scope of vision, as it should be. In the world, let me just use a couple examples in our time. We have every right, right, you go girl, to hold a grudge or withhold forgiveness for wrongs received, but Christ teaches us to forgive as we've been forgiven. What does he say, seven times? You can, God, I give seven times? No, 70 times seven. You see the difference? So we speak not in the wisdom of the world, but in the wisdom of the Spirit. In the world, it's totally okay to seek power and influence. But Christ teaches us that the meek are the ones that are blessed. The world teaches us that we should save and fortify and hoard, but Christ teaches us that it's better to give than to receive. The world teaches us that there is expediency in self-preservation. That we can end the marriage, we can terminate the pregnancy, we can cheat in business, we can lie for advantage, we can lust for power, we can indulge in sensuality. The church proclaims different wisdom, different holiness, full of humility and life and truth and beauty and resurrection. And our testimony on this point must be sharp. The salt cannot lose its savor by trafficking in the wisdom of this world, but remain distinct by proclaiming the wisdom that we receive not from our own selves but from the spirit of God teaching us what's right that's completely contrary to the world's wisdom So point number 2 we have the spirit of God not of this world we must live and speak and impart that wisdom primarily calls for repentance <clears throat> Last section, the natural versus the spiritual person. It begins to contrast those, I won't read the text, uh, but it's verses 14 through 16, as those who can receive this are spiritual people. They have become mature in their understanding versus those who are in the flesh. Paul calls them the natural person. He says that some of you Corinthians can't stomach my apostleship because you've become natural. stop it. That's the application to them. Um, But Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, if I'm in it, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is another way of saying, as the man did in John 9, I was blind but now I see this spiritual, natural language is sometimes a bit tedious. It's a little tough on the ears. But the testimony of the man of John 9 resonates well. All of us can say, this is true. I might not understand all the distinctions of the theology. We can discuss those. But something happened to me. I was crucified with Christ. And I can put it maybe even just as simple terms as I was blind at one point, but now I see. Hmm. Don Carson says, says this of this verse, The Christian has lived in both worlds and can speak from both experiences, from observation, from a genuine grasp of the Word of God, but the person without the Spirit cannot properly assess what goes on in the spiritual realm. Any more than a person who is colorblind is qualified to make nice distinctions in the dramatic hues of a sunset or a rainbow. Or any more than a person who is born deaf is qualified to comment on the harmony of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The text ends with this form of judgment by saying, well, the spiritual person can't even be judged by the natural person. And that's exactly what he's saying. It's as if the world looks at the Christian now, not only the cross as alien and strange and foolish, but they see our lives. They see our self-sacrifice. Wives, they see your submission to your husband. Husbands, they see your sacrificial uh, life for your wife. They see our generosity. They see martyrdom. They see persecution. Why would we keep this up? And the world looks at that and thinks it's strange They begin to cast judgment on the church, but they can't. It's like someone who's blind trying to comment on a painting or the colors of the rainbow. They don't have the experience that we have. Paul says the spiritual person can judge all things. And to Don Carson's point, it's saying we've been there. I was blind once. I know what that was like. I know what it was like to look at the cross. Paul says that. He says, I was a persecutor. I was hot to persecute the Christ of the cross. But then I saw it. I was able to see. Now I consider everything worthless for the sake of knowing Christ. I've been crucified with Christ we too must become and embody the gospel wisdom. Not only the central point, the focus being the cross, but a cross-centered life. A life that imitates the cross. A life that points to the cross. John 15 jesus gives us these marching orders that we should do well to remember this morning if the world hates you know that it's hated me before it hated you and if you are of the world of the rulers of this world the world would love you as its own but because you're not of this world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you remember the word that i said to you remember this paul is just articulating this point a servant's not greater than his master you hear that in the lives of the Corinthians? You Corinthians, you're, you're puffing yourselves up with all your gifts and your riches and your, your sense of rule. You get, you're getting, you're, you're holier than Christ. service servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on the account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. A couple of things I think we need to kind of rub into our mind as we close this section of Scripture. And one is remembering a sense of the world's culpability. I was reminded of this text as I was reading it, thinking, can you make a counter-argument and say, well, if the wisdom's hidden, is it not their fault? If the wisdom of the cross is hidden, then, then who, who are we to blame them for such things, well, remember this point: the point is not primarily an intellectual inability to understand, but a moral inability to love. It is that not ignorance standing in their way; it's pride, it's a love of sin. So when you go to give a testimony, right, your testimony. You're imparting the wisdom of God. Okay? That's the importance of our testimony, maybe over against the importance of apologetics in the public square. When's the last time you've just talked about the power of God in your own life? When's the last time you've just proclaimed the, the wisdom of the cross and the beauty of it? When's the last time you've relished in your redemption for those who haven't seen? Remember Paul's point. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart has imagined for those who love God. And it's the testimony of the church precisely to this world to say, you have no idea what you're rejecting. Just like the text says to the rulers of this world, you have no idea what you're turning away from. Let me testify to you. Not only trying to win you over in in the intellect, but let me tell you, speak from the heart. Our hearts are changed. God has enlivened us to feel, to love, to see, to enjoy Primarily, we always share and delight to share in what we love. Anytime I take a bite of great food, I don't hoard the next bite. I I offer it up to someone else. You've got to try this. That's our testimony. We want to share what we love. Lastly, we'll close just by, again, relishing that by the grace of God, to the gift of the Spirit the things hidden have become seen and maybe to you this morning this all sounds strange because you don't love Christ so talking about the love of God how can you love him, he's distant how, do, how can you enjoy him I hear about him a lot but I have no relationship my testimony to you is to taste and see that the Lord is good Because you can't just see that the Lord is good. You have to taste. You have to go to the cross. You have to go to his actions. You have to look at him. You have to behold him. And you'll grow to love him. Tasting comes first. And then the seeing. The wisdom is hidden until the taste comes.